Thank you for listening to the All Souls Church Sermon Podcast. We are a counterformational community devoted to following Jesus together in real life. For more information, go to allsouls.church. Hey, All Souls, good to be with you today. Pastor Justin here. It's been a while uh, since I've been up here. Pastor Harvey's been dominating the pulpit as he does. Uh, So it's good to be back with you today. We are looking at uh, Matthew chapter 21. We're still in Matthew, been in Matthew for what feels like 30 years or so. Uh, But we are uh, biting off a big chunk today. So we are going to look at Matthew 18 all the way through 46. So anytime you have that many verses, uh, you can do two things. One is you can do a two-hour sermon where you go verse by verse through the entire thing, and nobody wants that. The other thing you can do is to kind of zoom out, and that's that's what I want to do uh, today. There's four little stories, four little episodes uh, that we're going to look at here. Jesus' interaction with his disciples, with the Pharisees, with the crowds, and, uh, and they have a theme running through them. Okay, so I, I want to set the stage for you just a little bit um, because the, we, we skipped a little bit in, in Matthew. In the beginning of this chapter, we see what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the final time. He is now uh, days away from his trial and his crucifixion and all of the, the craziness of Passion Week is, is happening right now. So He rolled in uh, on a Sunday into Jerusalem, and the story we just skipped that we're going to talk about on Palm Sunday is not only his entrance into the city, which was much celebrated, but then he goes straight to the temple, and if you've read this story more than once, you'll remember that he started flipping over tables, he made a whip, he started whipping fools, and just made a general mess of the place, saying kind of climactically, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers, right? Now, as you probably know, the the temple was the center not only of Jewish worship, but really Jewish life. So there was in the outer courts a marketplace that had been set up that was mostly for uh, Jewish pilgrims to be able to come in and buy, you know, whatever dove or ram or sheep or whatever it was they needed to be able to make the sacrifices they were there to make. The problem was uh, that this made quite a commotion. You can imagine having a bunch of animals, and if you've ever been to the Middle East uh, or or in any place where there was kind of an outside bazaar, right, B-A-Z-A-A-R, bazaar, although they're crazy, uh, then you know they're loud, it's wild, right? So the problem with this is that the place where that market was set up was the court of the Gentiles, which means any, any Gentiles, non-Jews that worshiped God would be in that area. That was the area of the temple set aside for their worship. And the Jews had turned it into a marketplace, which doesn't make for a great place to worship. Okay, So Jesus rolls in and upends all of this, literally flipping tables and just making a total mess of the place, which is a huge disruption to Jewish life, a huge disruption to Jewish worship, okay? So then he leaves the city, staying outside the city, possibly in Bethany, and he is coming back into the city now. So this is Monday morning. He's walking with his disciples back into the city, 
and we're going to see these four little episodes that make up part of one day, not even a whole day. So with all of the Gospels, you get this kind of broad overview for everything in Jesus' life leading up to this final week, and then they all kind of slow down. And we get a lot of, in fact, the, the remaining seven chapters of Matthew basically oversee one week of time, okay? We've, so we've covered 33 or so years in the first 20 chapters, and now the last eight, we're going to cover about a week, okay? So this is all really important. The climax is coming, and we see a subtle shift in Jesus's attitude, right? So up until this point, Jesus has been, you know, what we all know and love about Jesus. He, he loves the kids and the poor people and the sick people and the old ladies. And, you know, he's, all, he's just this kind, loving, kind of itinerant hippie preacher guy. And, and now he's in the final week of his life and just there's a bit of a shift. Okay, so we're going to see that. I want to see that shift and talk about why that might be happening as we kind of do an overview of this chapter. So verse 18 says this, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, a lot of people will look at this story and be like, eh, this is a little petty, right? A little petulant. Like Jesus is hangry in this story, right? He's walking back to the city. He's hungry. He goes to the tree. There are no figs. He curses the tree and says, you will never have figs again. You will never bear fruit again. You can imagine the disciples being like, dang, man, chill, right? Like, it's just one tree that didn't have figs, didn't need to curse it for the rest of its life. And I, and I, I wonder kind of what's, what's happening here. Now, by all means, as someone who gets hangry quite often, I totally understand this. If I had the power to curse a fig tree or my refrigerator, I would do that from time to time because I get hangry, right? I am somebody who uh, eats all the time. I love food, I love to eat food, I love to smell food, I love to touch food. Anything about food, I'm into it, right? And so I have to be constantly paying attention to what I'm eating, because if I am not dieting, I'm gaining weight, right? This is just my lot in life. And so I am basically constantly dieting in some form or another, and none of them work. So I'm always trying something new. And I tell my wife, oh, this is the thing. This is, this is, it's keto this time. It's paleo this time. It's intermittent fasting. It's keto, paleo, and intermittent fasting all at once, right? Like I've tried them all, okay? But what happens is I'm making sacrifices, you know, for the family. Got to keep it tight for the family, and so I get into this anger mode, this hanger, because I'm sacrificing and they're all eating. Because see, my wife doesn't struggle with this at all. She's one of those people that forgets to eat, which just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I will regularly come home at the end of my workday and she'll be like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch today. I'm like, what? You forgot to eat lunch? I forgot that I ate lunch and I ate a second one, right? Like, that I have literally never forgotten to eat lunch in my whole life. And that happens to her all the time. And so she stays all fit and all this because she doesn't eat. It's terrible, right? So I 
and suffering and struggling and I'm hungry and I don't want to be hungry and I want to eat, but I can't eat. And I have a single little chicken breast with sprinkled some parsley on it or something. And that's, that's all I get, you know, just to keep it tight. Right. And I, I think that there is this sense of like, I'm sacrificing and all of you are rejoicing and eating when doing whatever you want. And, and that I, I want us all to suffer together. You know, I'm a team guy. Right. So I want us to suffer together. I don't, I'm not a solo guy, you know, like I don't want to do this on my own. Right. So it makes me, makes me hangry, makes me a little, a little bitter, a little sensitive. Okay. And Jesus, as he is, I'm, you know, kind of joking about him being hangry, but there is a heightened sense of intensity in Jesus in these four stories. And really starting with the one before with him in the temple, right? That's fairly uncharacteristic of Jesus to go in and physically uproot uh, the, the entire temple, right? So there, there's an edge to Jesus in these stories that I want us to pay attention to and see maybe why. So the story goes on, verse 20 says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, right? Marveled is another way of going like, what the what, right? What is he doing? Say, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, a lot of times that passage, just that last sentence about prayer kind of gets pulled out of it and we go, okay, this is a, this is a statement about prayer and what, you know, the power of prayer. And I go, yeah, kind of except that that's not really the context of what Jesus is talking about, right? So he has been dealing now for three years with the Pharisees and with the Jewish religious leaders and with the Jews who have been kind of hot and cold with God for generations. Finally, Jesus, the Messiah that they supposedly have been looking for their whole lives, finally shows up and they're, you know, it's a mixed bag. And in fact, the Pharisees have almost fully rejected him and the Sadducees and all of the religious leaders have basically gone like, yeah, no, Jesus is not the guy. He's not the Messiah we've been looking for. Okay. They have not responded the way he has asked them to respond, which is by faith. So over and over and over in this passage and really throughout Jesus' ministry, he's used this Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. It just means faith or to believe. And that's, that's his ask. That's always been his ask from John 3, 16, all the way through. Just believe me, just believe that I am who I say I am. Believe in me. And in, and so in Jesus' statement here with the fig tree, he's, it's kind of like he's laying out the stakes, right? So he curses the fig tree and the disciples' minds are blown, even though he's already walked on water. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He, 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 have brought other people back to life. I mean, he has done miracle after miracle after miracle. He withers a fig tree and the disciples are like, what? How did that happen? And Jesus goes, guys, have you not yet figured out what is at your fingertips here? Have you not yet figured out who I am and what my offer is? That all you have to do is believe. All you got to do is have, have faith that I am who I say I am. I am the guy who raised the dead, who walked on water, who healed the sick, who fed the 5,000. I'm that guy. All you got to do is believe. 
withered. A fig tree is nothing. And he points to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's up on a hill. He goes, you could move that mountain. You could throw Jerusalem into the sea if you believe. Now, is anybody going to do that? I certainly hope not. But he's going, guys, haven't you figured it out yet? You're, you're following me around and squabbling over who gets to sit on my right hand on my left and, you know, fighting amongst yourselves and fighting with the Pharisees and keeping the little kids away. You're missing the point. You are in the presence of God, divinity, and all the power that goes with that. Those are the stakes, guys. That's what we're talking about here. Not who's the right religious leader and who's right on this issue and who's wrong on that issue. Man, that is missing the point. I'm God. So come on, let's go. Right? So he, he has this moment with the disciples. He goes into Jerusalem. It says when he entered the temple and went back to the temple, and certainly they're still putting the place back together. It says the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing those things? And who gave you this authority? Right? So there's an assumption baked into that question, right? That you can't just, nobody can just walk into the temple and go, hey, you're doing it wrong, right? You got to have some level of authority in order to be able to do that, right? So my son Cole is playing baseball right now, Little League, he's 10. And, uh, and I'm not coaching. This is the first year I've never not coached him. And I'm watching his team play out and, and the coaches coach. And I hope they don't watch this because they don't really know what they're doing, Right? And I'm watching this practice after practice after practice of them not teaching the kids, not having a plan for practice, all this stuff. And I finally reached out to the coach and I said, hey man, can, can we sit and talk before practice? I just have a couple things I want to run by it. And we sit down and I said, hey man, I'm not trying to be that guy, but I, I played college baseball. Uh, I, I coached high school baseball. I've coached Cole's Little League teams every single year. I've got a ton of experience with this stuff. I'd like to be able to help because I don't see a lot of teaching happening. I see a lot of threatening and some shaming and not a lot of teaching. So can I, can I help coach this team? Now, to his credit, the coach was great about it. He basically handed the team to me and he goes, I'm a wrestling guy, I don't know what I'm doing, which was clear the way he wrestled the kids. Um, no, but the, 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 the point is, I had to establish a level of authority, a level of credibility to be able to offer what I offer. If I just came in with, hey, man, you're doing a bad job. And he's like, great, what's your background? Well, you know, construction, you know, or something. That wouldn't make any sense. So I had to establish, like, hey, I spent my whole life playing baseball. I played at a really high level. I coached at a high level. I've coached at a low level as well, but for a really long time. Now, does that earn me the right to be able to speak into this situation? And, and to his credit, he was very humble about it, and he's allowed me to help. The team doesn't get any better, but now I'm helping. It makes me feel better. So Jesus rolls into the temple, upends everything, and the, and the chief priests and the elders go, who are you? By what authority do you think you can roll into the temple and start flipping tables over and whipping fools? Like, well, who do you think you are? Who gave you that authority? Because not just anybody can do that. Jesus' response, verse 24, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Love Jesus. Just flipping it right back on him, right? He says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Apparently the Pharisees are bad whisperers, right? Because everyone, somebody heard this, right? So this is the deal. Jesus goes, tell me about John. Was his baptism from God or in his ministry from God or was it from man? Was he just a guy? And so they're like, well, you know, if we say he's from God, then, then Jesus will go, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you obey him? Why didn't you follow him? But if we say he's from man, the people will get mad. And we, you know, kind of our power and our livelihood is based on the favor of the people. And so their response is, we do not know. Classic politicians. We do not know. Just punted on the whole question. Jesus goes, and I just picture Jesus looking him straight in the eye and saying, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, right? Like, okay, if you're going to play games, I'm not going to answer your question, right? I'm not going to give you the answer that you're looking for because I've said it over and over and over and over. He said that his father has sent him, that God himself sent him, that he was the son of God. He said it over and over. So them asking isn't like, well, we've never heard this. They're just trying to entrap him in something. He goes, you tell me something, hypocrite. Where did John's ministry come from, right? And then in that very moment, he turns and says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you saw the ministry, you saw the outcome, you saw the fruit of his ministry, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus goes, you all got a lot of pretense. You got a lot of religion. You got a lot of piety, you got a lot of words, you got a lot of robes you're wearing. But at the end of the day, you say yes to God, but you don't do anything. Tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, by their lives said no to God over and over and over and over and over. But then they heard the word of John, or they've heard my word, and they repent. They change their minds, and they follow. Which of those is doing the will of God. Now, Jesus accomplishes two things in this short little interaction. One is he challenges the Pharisees by going, listen, the, the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes and you know all, all these sinners that you won't touch or be near, they lived terrible lives. But when they saw John or when they saw me, they turned. You have actually lived pretty good lives pretty pious, pretty holy, not doing a lot of bad stuff. But you know what? When push comes to shove and you have an opportunity to follow God by believing in the Messiah, you don't. So you pass the test that doesn't really matter. The, the test of you know being good and living the life and all that because you can never be good enough. So you, you kind of pass the cultural test, the religious test, the test that doesn't get you into class but you failed the test that matters. 
So that's the first thing. Jesus, in, in a way that is a step more aggressive than anything he has done before with the Pharisees, typically just kind of tells parables and walks away and they're like, wait, was that about us, right? He is going straight at him going, listen, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you do, because at least they recognize the truth when they saw. Now, that's the first thing he's doing. The second thing he's doing is he is continuing to tell the gospel in a way that offers grace. Because the, the example of the good person or the, the right person in this story isn't a holy person, isn't a godly person, isn't a religious person. It's a repentant person. It's a person with faith. It's a person who recognizes God and goes, I need you. What I'm doing is not working. The, the tax collecting, the prostitute, and the sin, and the whatever, it's not, it's not working. It's not bringing me life. I see in you life. And so I'm going to turn my back on all of that and pursue you. See, the, when, when Jesus asked the, the, the Pharisees a question about John, was he trying to trap them? No. Jesus doesn't trap. Pharisees trap. Jesus doesn't trap. Jesus was trying to expose for sure, but he wasn't trying to trap. Because you know, the Pharisees had several options in that moment. They could have been honest. And if they, if they actually believed that John was just a guy, they could have just been honest and said, yeah, we don't, we don't believe he's a prophet. We don't believe he's from God. Or they could have said, hey, we actually do believe that, that John is a prophet and we should have followed him. We, we should have, and, and we were wrong to not follow him. And we see that you are, are someone with authority and power, and, and we want to follow you too. But they chose this third way, which was the worst of all the ways, because it was a, a way of falsehood, a way of obscuring truth, a way of hiding. Instead of just admitting their unbelief or professing belief, they hid behind politics and power grabbing and hiding. They hid behind their own hiding, their own insecurity, their own fear, which is the absolute worst of all options. And so Jesus's goal here is to press them in a way that reveals the truth about who they are. We're going to see why in just a moment. Jesus immediately says, hear another parable. So he's already given, given them one, the two sons. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this was very common. Wealthy merchants would buy land. They would plant a vineyard. Then they would rent out that vineyard to tenants. This still happens today. So that someone who owns the land, owns the vineyard, maybe doesn't run the winery. Right? And so then somebody rents that land, produces the wine, and then they pay a portion of their fruits to the landowner. Okay, This is a common arrangement. It says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. This was the deal. The tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, 
what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, they quickly answer. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of, the, of their seasons. I got to imagine Jesus took a beat right there and was like, you guys are so dumb. I, he just set them up. Obviously, this, this parable is about them. God sends the prophets. The people don't listen. God sends John the Baptist. The people don't listen. God sends his only son. The people don't listen. In fact, the, the foolishness of the tenants in this story is put on almost comical display. It's almost like Jesus is openly mocking the stupidity of these tenants, right? Since they took, the, when these tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. As if them killing the, the heir to the land, that the landowner would then go, well, they killed my son, so I guess I'll just give it to them. That's insane. Like that would never happen. So the, the stupidity of their assumptions and their logic to go, well, we're going to kill the servants. We're going to kill the servants. Well, the son's here. If we kill him, then we'll get everything as if the landowner wouldn't just come and wipe them out. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Quoting their own scriptures to them, reminding them that, that this, this messianic prophecy about the stone that the builders rejected ends up being actually the cornerstone. And we don't have enough time to get into all of the architectural reasons why that matters. But basically what, the, what they're saying is the, all of the experts looked at this stone and said, no, that's not the one. But that was the one that ended up being the cornerstone that the rest of the house was built upon to the shame of those builders and architects who couldn't recognize the cornerstone when it was in front of them. Jesus then, in, in, in a move that is as confrontational, as aggressive as Jesus ever gets, says, therefore I tell you, Pharisees, therefore I tell you, religious person, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That was the theme since day one. From the very first story, Jesus walks to a fig tree that's not bearing fruit and he curses it and says, if you're not going to bear fruit, if you're not going to do the thing you were made to do, you're a fig tree. Your only job in life is to produce figs. And I walk up to you in need. I'm hungry. I made you to feed me and you're not feeding me. You're not producing the fruit I made you for. Cursed are you. And the Pharisees come and challenge him and they're hypocritical in their answer and they hide and obscure and dodge. And Jesus goes, well, then why would I waste more time on you? But then even then, in his grace, he tells this story of the two sons and tells a story of repentance, glorifying the son, in that, not the son that, that said yes but didn't do it, but the son that initially said no, but then repentantly did what the father asked him to do. Again, telling a story of grace. So you, you don't have to always say yes. You don't always have to do it right in order to be accepted. You just have to repent and believe the gospel. In the end, over and over and over. And finally tells them a parable where he goes, God, 
God has sent you messenger after messenger after messenger. Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the prophets. He sent you John the Baptist. He sent his only son. If you reject me and, and don't do what you were made to do, be who you were made to be like the fig tree, you too will be cursed. Not because you didn't do enough good things, but because you didn't do the one thing. That is to turn and believe in me. Jesus, what I think, as he's getting nearer and nearer and nearer his death, as he walks closer and closer to his sacrifice, is feeling the weight of this. And as he knows, like he, he's about to die at these Pharisees' hands, he's going, I, I don't have time to play your games. I don't have time to mess around with you and all of your, your, your obscuring and your hiding and your hypocrisy. I'm not going to mess with you anymore because I'm about to die for you. I, I have come and I've demonstrated the power of God. I have healed. I have raised the dead. I've walked on water, multiplied the food. You have been given ample evidence and you're still playing games. I'm telling you, if you can just come and be with me, you can curse fig trees all you want. You can move mountains and throw cities into the ocean. It's, I'm, I'm God. Those are the stakes. But if you don't, then the stakes are equally hard on the other end. They're equally dire. And I think as Jesus recognizes more and more, as every day draws nearer to his crucifixion, he goes, guys, I'm not going to play. I want to be direct with you so that you know really clearly who I am and what it takes. And, and it does appear that Jesus has a particular contempt for, for the kind of religiosity and, and, and the falsities of the Pharisees. And I think it's because not only, uh, not only do they obscure the truth, but they lead down a path to death. Because see, here's the thing, pretending that you are well when you are actually sick is just a swift path to death. Pretending you are well when you are actually sick is just a swift path to death. You cannot fake yourself well. So he's looking at these Pharisees going, not, not only is your faking killing you, because you're not reaching for the offer of life that I have given you. Not only is it actually killing you, but you're spreading a false gospel. You're spreading a gospel by your words and your deeds, by your example that says, appear to be good, say the right things, never reveal the truth, never be honest, never repent. Just put on this, this, this facade of faith, this facade of religiosity. That's the path. And so that crushes people. That crushes people. That false gospel of be good, do good crushes people. Jesus goes, it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes who get it. Not that I want people to keep being tax collectors and prostitutes, not at all. But what they're leaning on for their hope, what they're leaning on for their life is not their own ability to tidy up and clean up and be good, but they're leaning on me. 
They're leaning on God. They're leaning on the one who can raise the dead physically and spiritually. I'm it. It's a one-name list that can accomplish what you need. The redemption, the renewal, the salvation that you need. It's just me. And all it takes is faith. All it takes is you being honest. I can't do it. You can help me. That's it. Jesus goes, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand why you would mess around with this. I don't understand why you would hide and fake and be false. I don't understand why you would be reserved, hold back, and not be honest. I don't understand. I've shown you what's possible on the positive side. I have been really clear about the consequences on the negative side. And all it takes is you going, I can't, you can, please do. That's it. And I, I think Jesus is just kind of tired of just telling stories and walking away because the Pharisees get it. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. These guys are sharp. You know, nothing gets by these guys. They, they perceived that the parable was about them when Jesus looked them in the eye and said, it's about you. They're like, wait a second. I think this is about us. It's about you. It's about you. It's about me. Because not only is this a one-time thing where, you know, there is a moment where, where the tax collector and the prostitute turned and went, I can't do this. I need you. And then there was the very next moment where they tried to do it themselves again. And they had to do it again and go, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I need you. And then 10 minutes go by and they try to do it themselves again. They go, nope, I can't do it. I need you. Because repentance isn't a thing we do one time and we're done. It, repentance is a thing we do over and over and over and over. Every single time we reach for something else to give us life, something else to give us satisfaction, something else to give us meaning, something else to give us identity, something else to be a, a hierarchy or a value or something that we go, I could be somebody or I could do this thing or this is my hope or this is what it could be like that isn't God. Th those are the moments. We have to turn and repent again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And Jesus goes, great, come on back. I saw you moving over there towards your career. I saw you careening over towards money. I saw you reaching for that woman. I saw you reaching for that husband. I saw, I saw it and I was just asking you to come back. I, I could give you those things, but come to me for them. Don't come to them for life. Come to me and I'll give you what you need. That's the offer. And in this moment of crisis, this moment of increasing intensity, Jesus gets pretty confrontational, pretty direct, because life is at stake. It's worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, we so easily, I so easily forget the stakes. I forget what's on offer. I forget how good it can be. And so I reach for lesser things. I, I reach for little things that will satisfy me little. I reach for things that I that are fragile, but I but I hope can be strong. I, I reach for things that are weak, but I but I believe can hold me up. When I get fearful and anxious, I try to control instead of going to you in repentance and faith. So God, I, I pray that we would hear. The, the confrontation of Christ here. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, 
There's not a moment in our day, there's not a, you know, a day of our week that we don't need to hear this reminder. This our, the constant temptation is to be a Pharisee. The constant temptation is, is to be self-sufficient. And that's why in, in, in really ironic ways, the, the ask of the gospel is one of the most difficult asks you could make, which is, I can't. The, the, to admit, I can't, and only you can. That's hard. So Lord, move in us. Show us grace. Give us the spirit so that we can do that little thing that brings such big life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.